Well, happy Sabbath once again. Welcome to all of you to the divine service today. And before I start, could we just have a, a moment of prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you once again for having brought us into your sanctuary. May every word, may every deed that is performed here today reflect your wish, O Lord. May we do right in your eyes. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen. A long, long time ago, when I was 11 or 12 years old, my father, in his fatherly wisdom, enrolled me in Little League Baseball. I think he did it so that I wouldn't be hanging around the house all summer. And it may be the case today, but it certainly was the case back then, that everybody made the team, which was good for me because I couldn't hit the ball, I couldn't throw the ball, and I definitely couldn't catch the ball. So I spent an awful lot of time that season sitting in the dugout, uh, playing games with those of us who sat on the substitutes bench. We had some silly games at that time. And I would sometimes get into a game in the eighth or the ninth inning to bat when we were so far ahead that it wouldn't matter if I struck out on three pitches or to field if we were so far behind that it wouldn't matter if I muffed three or four pop flies. But one day in August, the coach came to me and said, Ross, you're starting the next game. Wow, what had happened? Well, of course, it was summer holidays, and half the team had taken off on holidays, so he had no choice but to start me. But I was really excited, and I, I, I remember telling my mother and father, you've got to come and watch me. You've got to come and watch me. I'm starting this game. Come on, you've got to come and see me play. And after I'd bothered them enough, they said, yeah, okay, we'll come and watch you play. Boy, was I happy. So we get to the game, and somewhere around the fourth or fifth inning occurred what I would characterize as a small miracle. I came up to bat, closed my eyes, swung at the ball, and guess what happened? It was a home run right over the fence. Oh, man, was I happy. I ran around the bases, and I still remember to this day as I rounded the third base, looking up into the stands to see my parents, to see how happy they were about what I'd just done. But there were so many people in the stands, I didn't really, uh, really notice them. So anyway, I get jumped on at home plate, as usually happens, and... Anyway, the game went on, and I don't remember the rest of it. I was so enthralled with my, my home run. And uh, after the game and after we went out for pizza, I, I, I went home and I dashed through the door and I said, Mom, Dad, did you see it? Did you see it? And they sort of looked at me with this blank look on their faces. And I said, the game, didn't you see my home run? Didn't you see it? And there was an embarrassed silence. And then finally my mother said, well... Your father was so tired that we decided to stay at home. And I just went like, oh. I was so disappointed. The one moment of sporting glory in my entire life, and my parents missed it. But you know, everyone suffers disappointment. We all come across moments when our hopes and expectations for a good and positive outcome just aren't realized. I think about the young girl I read about recently who had her mind set on becoming a lawyer. 
Unfortunately, she failed the law school admission test, and she said she was very disappointed. I think about the officer who was sure that he was going to be promoted, but when the promotion list came out, his name wasn't on it. I think about the parents who thought they had raised their son in the right way until one day there was a knock on the door, and when they answered it, the policeman said, your son has been arrested for stealing somebody's car. So many disappointments, and I'm sure everybody here has had them. And the Bible is full of disappointed people. Think, for example, of Sarah or Rebecca or Hannah or Elizabeth, who went so many years without being able to bear a child. Eventually, there was success. But think of it at that time when women were expected to marry young and have children, and they didn't. Think of the ongoing disappointment year after year. And think of, just imagine the comments of neighbors about that particular situation. Uh, A double disappointment. Or take the example of the disciples who expected that Jesus would establish an earthly kingdom, would overthrow the Romans, and would establish Israel as a permanent kingdom. They jockeyed for positions in that particular kingdom, and they were disappointed when they realized, very late, that it was not an earthly kingdom that Jesus was talking about, but a heavenly kingdom. And we've been studying Job, and uh, we can turn, I hope, to our, uh, if I can figure out how to work it, Maybe I can't figure out how to work it. Well. <laughs> ah, it's, a, <laughs> it's a delayed reaction. So we can look at our words from, from Job. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things, miserable comforters are ye all. Shall vain words have an end? Or what emboldens thee that thou answerest? I also could speak as ye do, if your soul were in my soul's stead. I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the moving of my lips should assuage your grief. Think of it. Here is Job, his body covered in boils, suffering immense physical pain. He needed words of support, words of comfort, words of sympathy from his friends. But what did they do? Well, they criticized him. What have you done wrong, Job? What kind of friends are those? He must have been extremely disappointed in them. What's today's date? 22nd? Why is that important? 1844? Yes. It's the 172nd anniversary of the Great Disappointment. And if you stay around for the movie, you'll have an in-depth look at that. But I want to, in honor of this anniversary, in honor of this particular event and related to our theme, talk a little bit more at length about the Great Disappointment. And bear in mind that what I'm saying is not a theological explanation, nor a historical analysis. It's basically a summary about 
the arrival of the Great Disappointment. And from our perspective, the story actually begins with one man, William Miller, and one event, the Battle of Plattsburgh on September 11, 1814. And sorry, I'm going to digress a minute. For those of you who have historical interest, the Battle of Plattsburgh was interesting for three things that took place. One is the brilliant naval tactics of the American naval commander, which resulted in the complete destruction of the British ships of the line. The second was the fact that the British forces, despite overwhelming numerical superiority, uh, withdrew. And the third and perhaps most important point, historically speaking, is that the Battle of Plattsburgh, coupled with the British failure on their assault on Baltimore, took all of the negotiating advantage away from the British and placed it on the Americans, and turned what should have been a lost war for the Americans into a drawn war. Uh, it's not how you start a war, it's how you end it. Uh, sorry about that, I just have an interest in history. But at the Battle of Plattsburgh, two things happened which changed William Miller's life. First of all, a shell exploded close to him which injured and killed those around him but left him untouched. Secondly, despite the numerical odds, the Americans won the battle. So that arose, aroused in Miller's mind two questions. Why did I survive and why did the Americans win? And his simple answer at that time was, there's more in this than the work of man. It must be the work of God. So Miller, who was born in 1782 and was a farmer working his land in Vermont, was not quite the simple farmer that he humbly claimed to be. He served as a deputy sheriff, he served as a justice of the peace, and he raised a company of uh, infantry and in those times when you raised an infantry unit, you had to pay a lot of the initial costs. He was a Baptist who left the faith and then returned the faith, to the faith as a Baptist. He spent two years from 1816 to 1818 reading the Bible intensely from cover to cover over and over again. And the story goes that he used only the Bible and a Bible concordance. But it seems clear that because of his Baptist faith, and because of his expressed and stated commitment to accepted Protestant values and practices, that those influence his study as well. In any event, the most significant conclusion that Miller came to in the context that we are looking at is that the second coming of Jesus Christ would take place within 25 years. His prediction was made in 1818. In 25 years, he said, Jesus would be coming. And the core of his conclusion comes from Daniel 8:14, unto 2,300 days, and then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. He, of course, was not the first to make this particular prediction, uh, nor was he the first to use the day-year principle, which was much more in common usage then than it is today. And he refined his conclusions to say that Christ would return between March 21st 1843, and March 21st, 1844. And at first, Miller shared his conclusions with just friends and family and people in the, in the neighborhood. In fact, it was only in 1831 that he began preaching about the second coming. 
And uh, he did this in very small congregations in Vermont and New York State. But he managed to win converts. But really, it was only nine years later, in 1840, that the message really began to spread. Now, Miller was not a charismatic character. He wasn't an evangelist or a good speaker. He attempted to convince people through rational, analytical arguments, not through impassioned pleas to emotions. But the movement really took off when he linked up with Joseph Hines, who not only was more charismatic, more widely known, had lots of contacts, and on top of that, had a publishing company. So they would send out tracts and publications, and the movement spread rapidly. It's worth noting that at this time there was a kind of dynamic in early American society that both contributed to support for the Millerite movement, but also contributed to opposition to the movement. This was a time known as the Second Great Awakening, when there was a lot of questioning about traditional Protestant practices and people were looking for answers, biblical kinds of answers, religious kinds of answers. But at the same time, there was a real attitude that we can do it. America, the United States, was an expanding, energetic, youthful, optimistic society at that time. I don't think it's optimistic anymore. And so there was this belief that we as human beings could do what needed to be done. And that translated into the religious sphere as well. The dominant sort of belief at that time was that Jesus Christ would come after a thousand-year period during which human beings would establish peace, prosperity, and greatness for all people. But this, of course, contrasted with Miller's view at the time and the other view that, no, this earth wasn't such a good place and Christ was going to come before the millennium came. So this provided the basis, these, these provided the basis both for support for the Millerite movement and for opposition for the, to the Millerite movement. Now, Miller never predicted an actual date. As indicated earlier, he gave a time period of one year. And when Jesus didn't come in 1843 and early 1844, there was some mild disappointment, but nothing really serious. I think part of the answer is that Miller, in giving that time frame, said that it was a human calculation, it was subject to error, and there could be some differences in time frame. And uh, so it passed, and there wasn't a great deal of upsetness. But matters changed in August of 1844, when Samuel Snow, another Millerite, put forward an actual precise date, October 22nd, 1844. And uh, it might be interesting to examine how exactly he arrived at this precise date, but since it's kind of uh, arcane, we're certainly not going to do that today. We'll leave it for another time. But the setting of a date had a really dramatic impact. You know, setting a specific date focused people's minds. People were aroused by the idea. They were convinced. And within a short period of time, Miller had 50,000 people who were actively waiting for the Savior's return. And it's interesting to note that this was something that arose from the grassroots. The leaders of the Millerite movement did not accept initially 
the date of August, uh, excuse me, October 22nd, 1844. They had to be convinced by those below them. So on October 22nd, 1844, throughout New England and other parts of the eastern United States, people gathered together in churches, in homes, in open spaces, sung hymns, and prayed as they awaited the Savior's coming. Some had given up jobs. Some had sold their possessions. Some had moved their houses in order to await this great and glorious event. So what happened? What happened? Nothing. Jesus didn't come on October 22nd, 1844. But you know, I've heard, heard it mentioned that you know, nothing happened on October 22nd, 1844, so what's the big deal? So that, that reminds me, if this works, that reminds me of the famous story of Sherlock Holmes. Is there any other point to which you would wish to draw my attention? Holmes, to the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. The dog did nothing in the nighttime. That was a curious incident. The fact that nothing happens may in, excel, may in itself be extremely significant. Or to put it another way, the fact that nothing happened does not mean that nothing happened. But the shock and disappointment amongst the Millerites was absolutely palpable. Imagine how they felt. The culminating moment, the most gracious moment of their entire lives, which they had looked for and anticipated, had not been realized. Their expectations were dashed. And how would we feel if something like that happened to us? We would be decimated. We would be extremely disappointed. And there's a couple of quotes here that just hint at the turmoil and heartbreak that they had. Here's Hiram Edison, who was a, a, a close Millerite associate of William Miller. Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted. And such a spirit of weeping came over us as I have never experienced before. We wept and wept until the day dawned. And another Millerite, Henry Emmons. I waited all Tuesday, October 22nd, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday and was well in body as I ever was. But after 12 o'clock I began to feel faint. And before dark I needed someone to help me up to my chamber as my natural strength was leaving me very fast, and I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. Oh, imagine, imagine the feelings of those people. And the impact on the Millerite movement was devastating. Many who could not bear the thought of public humiliation when they returned to their houses to receive the insults of their neighbors actually went into the woods or went out of town, or left so that they wouldn't have to face those kinds of things. Both the popular press and the religious press heaped insults and opprobrium upon the Millerite movement. And individuals were insulted and threatened. Millerite churches were burned. Congregations were attacked with clubs. And indeed, a group of Millerites in Toronto was tarred and feathered. And I think William Miller himself recognized this, went through this. 
Odious names and cruel epithets were applied to us, and in many cases our motives were impugned, and a war of extermination was commenced against the Adventist faith. Serious consequences. So how did people respond to what had happened? How did they respond to this great disappointment? Well, first of all, the majority left the movement. The overwhelming majority gave up their beliefs in what Miller was teaching. The disappointment was so great that they became completely discouraged, disillusioned, and defeated. And I think this one particular quote, taken a bit out of context, really summarizes up the feeling of many of those who were in this position. Is there no God, no heaven, no golden home city, no paradise? Is all this a cunningly devised fable? Many believe that. So some returned to their original churches, and some forsook organized religion altogether. But there were other responses. Other groups took the view that, yes, Jesus had come on October 22nd, 1844, but he had not come in the literal sense. He had come in a spiritual sense. And many of these people joined spiritual organizations such as the Shakers. A third group took the view that October 22nd represented not the return of Christ, but the close of probation. And this view was based on their interpretation of Matthew 25, the parable of the, uh, the virgins. Some got in, some didn't get in. Some were saved, some were not saved. And so Jesus would return soon to collect those who had been saved, which might have made a lot of sense in the immediate aftermath of the great disappointment, but as time went by and Jesus didn't come and as more people were converted, it didn't make sense. The fourth and smallest group took the position that we need to have a proper analysis of what happened. So they went back to the Bible and they studied the Bible and they concluded not right away, but after a bit of time and after a bit of study and after a bit of thinking, that the date was correct, but the event was wrong. The sanctuary that was to be cleansed was not the earthly sanctuary, but the heavenly sanctuary. On October 22, 1844, therefore, Christ had entered the Holy of Holies to begin the judgment of believers. And from this particular small group, and from this particular belief, through several years of division, debate, reviews, meetings, conferences, incorporation of other beliefs and doctrines, came the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which, form, which was formally established in 1863. The investigative judgment itself is probably something that should be the subject of a future sermon. I've never heard it preached in a sermon in any church that I've attended. But it is a unique doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, yet sometimes one of the most under misunderstood doctrines. And it is also a target 
for many of those who wish to question our faith and our church. And it's something it behooves us to understand. But the early pioneers managed to overcome their disappointment. First of all, they took the time to go back to the Word, to increase their understanding, to make sure they were in the right direction. And we'll just show a a quote from Ellen White. It was a bitter disappointment. Yes, it was. Upon the little flock whose faith had been so strong and whose hope had been so high. But we were surprised that we felt so free in the Lord and were strongly sustained by his strength and grace. We were disappointed, yes, but we were not disheartened. We kept the faith. They kept the faith, and they did not give up when hopes were dashed. They kept the faith in God, and their faith was justified. The great disappointment, of course, was an example of a major traumatic disappointment, a disappointment that had serious consequences and long-term consequences. But there can also be a series of lesser disappointments, a whole range of things that disappoint us. And if anyone in the Bible can understand that, it's Moses, because he went through an awful lot of disappointment. You know, and it all started quite early. In Exodus 2, we have the story of Moses seeing an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And he intervened, and he killed the Egyptian. When he returned the next day, as Acts said, he supposed his brethren would have understood how that that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. Instead, what was the response? Who made thee a prince to judge over us? Here is Moses trying to help his people, and this was their response. He must have been disappointed in his own people. When Moses asked the Pharaoh to let people go into the wilderness to pray, and the king then said, well... If you want three days in the wilderness, you obviously have nothing to do. So from now on, you can make bricks, but you'll have to gather the straw for the bricks on your own. We're not going to provide it. What was the response that his people made? And they said unto them, Moses and Aaron, The Lord look upon you and judge, because you have made our savor to be abhorred in the eyes of the Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants, to put the sword in their hands to slay us. So there's a double disappointment there, a disappointment that the Pharaoh did not accede to Moses' request, but a disappointment that the people, instead of appreciating what he was trying to do on their behalf, criticized him. Very disappointing. And after Moses had led the people out of Egypt, out of their bondage, and led them into the wilderness, the people cried out many times, just look. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us, to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. But of course, that's not all. 
A little later, they say, the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full, for ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What? Didn't God promise to take them to the Holy Land? Did they forget the promise? Did they ignore the promise? It certainly seems so. Exodus 32 gives us the story of the golden calf. You remember while Moses was still on the mountain, the people came to Aaron and said, well, you know, we don't know what happened to this guy Moses. You know, build us something that can lead us. And so Moses, uh, Aaron built the golden calf. Of course, you'll remember from uh, an earlier quiz that we had that um, Aaron lied about how the golden calf was created. He said the people tossed all their gold in the fire and look what leaped out, a golden calf. In any event, Moses was on the mountaintop. The people forgot him. And God, God noticed, and God was concerned. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Indeed, they had. They had forgotten both God and Moses. And later on, you know the story that God provided a manna to his people to keep them fed. Well, you know, the people weren't happy, were they? They weren't happy at all. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing and, of course, came with onions and celery and leeks and garlic and all sorts of wonderful things. So here you've been provided for and you're not happy with what you're being provided with. Again, Moses must have been disappointed in his people. And finally, after a period of time, the people led by Moses reached the borders of the land of Canaan. And Moses sent spies into the, uh, the land. And you know the story. Joseph and Caleb came back with favorable reports about what was going on and said that we can take this land. And the other ten spies came back and talked to themselves as being grasshoppers among giants. And whose version did the people accept? That of the ten. And so the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt. They keep wishing they would have died in the land of Egypt. Or would God we had died in this wilderness. And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be prey? Or <clears throat> were it not better for us to return into Egypt? But God had fulfilled his promise. God has brought his people to the promised land, as promised. They had only enter, to enter into it. And God had said that he would protect them when they entered into the promised land. But they did not seize upon this promise. How disappointing for Moses to have led them all this way after all this time and then to have the people turn away. So what do we have? The Lord took his people out of Egypt. The Lord saved them from the Pharaoh's army. The Lord provided a pillar of cloud and a pillar of light to guide them day and night. He gave them manna to eat. 
He provided them with water from the rock at Horeb. He brought them to the border of the promised land. And all the people of Israel could do was whine and complain. Actually, sounds like modern society to me. How disappointed Moses must have been at his ungrateful people. And I really like the following quote from uh, uh, an American uh, teacher. Instead of a grateful, joyful people willing to endure anything to get to the wonderful homeland God had promised, he had to play nursemaid to a bunch of babies who were never satisfied no matter what he or God did. Very sad, very disappointing. But Moses himself was to suffer one more serious disappointment. And for him it was his great disappointment. After leading the people in the wilderness for all that time, Moses was not permitted to enter into the promised land. And Moses pleaded, Let me go over, I pray, and see the good land beyond Jordan, the goodly hill country, and Lebanon. But the Lord did not relent. Let it suffice you. Speak no more to me of this matter. Moses could view the promised land from the mountaintop, but he could not enter. A great disappointment. But what does Moses' saga show us about dealing with disappointment? I think it shows us four things. First, despite the continued disappointments that he faced, Moses, like Job, did not give up on the Lord. He kept his faith in the Lord. He never wavered in this regard, even after 40 years and all the hardships that he went through. And the lesson there is that we too must keep our faith. Second, Moses had a relationship with God. And yes, we know Moses had a special relationship. God says at one point, I speak to the people through prophets, but Moses I speak to face to face. But still, Moses could talk to God. Moses could talk to God about anything. Moses could even talk, complain to God. And we talked about that in the Sabbath school class. God is there to listen. God understands what is happening. God knows how we feel. God is there to listen and to answer. As Moses said at one point, early on I might add, O Lord, why hast thou done evil to this people? Why did thou, why did it thou ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he has done evil to this people, and thou hast not delivered thy people at all. A complaint, but God is ready to listen. If we have a relationship with God, we can talk about anything and everything because God understands. So have that relationship. Thirdly, when you look at the whole series of disappointments that Moses faced, doesn't it come to your mind maybe that, hey, this is a test. We're testing Moses here. And if we look at these things, if we look at God permitting this test to take place in our lives, it makes us easier to endure, to put up with, because we trust and we obey. But finally, 
as per Moses' last disappointment, sometimes things have to be accepted, no matter what we as individuals may feel. We cannot change them. We have to accept God's will. As God said, speak to me no more of this matter. Sometimes we must accept what God tells us to accept. The book of Ecclesiastes provides a very interesting picture of life. I have to confess that when I feel down, I like to read the book of Ecclesiastes. It has some things in there which, which touch me directly. But what does it say if we summarize? Well, all is vanity, it says. We live whatever life we have, and then we die. And so what? But life is more than that. And the book itself ends with a very important exhortation. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And I think we conclude, we can conclude this particular sermon, this particular lesson, with a similar exhortation taken from Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Thank you very much and God bless.